one of the things that's important is that when like there's this whole concept around diversity of mind and it's important that that when you're going through that growth which we're now in a different phase to where we were at the start of the year that we don't just keep bringing in the same type of person so actually one of our most recent hires is somebody that has a high level of structure because we know that we've got maybe more people that are used to kind of finding a way to make it work Welcome to Revenue Insights. Every week, we'll be joined by revenue leaders from some of the most successful and highest growing companies. Together, we explore how they built their revenue teams, the journeys that they've been on, and the lessons they have learned along the way. Revenue Insights is brought to you by Ebster. We're a revenue intelligence platform designed to help revenue teams to build more pipeline, close more deals, and retain more customers. Welcome to the Revenue Insights podcast for this week. Today, I'm joined by Stuart Dale. He's the VP of Revenue at ScreenLoop. Um, he spent over the last 10 years building, scaling, and transforming SaaS go-to-market teams. Um, and he previously did this over at Yieldify. Stuart, it's my pleasure to, to chat to you today. Great to speak, Lee, and thanks for, for letting me on. No problem at all. I've given you a bit of an intro there, but I'd love to know in your own words what your story is, your background, and what brings you to uh, to ScreenLoop today. Yeah, so I'm I was born in Glasgow and had a always an entrepreneurial background. Started when I was about twelve years old, set up an events company, had over I think about two hundred thousand customers over a five year window. And decided to then go to university and off I went, not really knowing kind of what I wanted to do. And I set up a tech company that, you know, on, on reflection was, uh, yeah, very kind of basic in what we we're trying to accomplish because I, I guess we just, well, I, I didn't know at that stage. And, you know, once once I, I decided to close that down, I went into the, the world of sales, was selling coffee machines of, of all things. Uh, and then found my way to uh, the world of SaaS when I was about 25 and joined Yieldify as an SDR, where I did yeah incredibly well, was the top performer, got relocated to New York, uh, which was meant to be for, for just a few weeks, ended up being there for, for almost five years and was running the office, uh, turned into over over 30 team members. And we grew that business from, from 1 million to 5 million over a two-year period and then relocated back to London to, to have my son and yeah managed to to, to join ScreenLoop which was actually founded by the same founder of, of uh, Yieldify uh, through a, a company called Bliss Growth and that's where I've been for the last 12 months. Nice and then just for the context actually of everyone listening what does ScreenLoop do and uh, let's see if you can get it in in under 30 seconds. Yes, ScreenLoop is a hiring intelligence platform. So we integrate directly with the applicant tracking systems that most companies are using to attract and and push candidates through their process internally. And we believe that there's missing components on data, insights and learnings. And and we try to bring that in to really ensure that you're only hiring the best talent for the job in an efficient manner and and also from a a diverse background. So trying to remove a lot of the bias that unfortunately exists within, within hiring. Awesome. That was pretty good. Pretty good going. And so to take us, and, and actually we'll come back to that because I know that's given you some pretty interesting insights. Um, but where I really want to start to dive into a little bit more, I know you've got a lot of experience, obviously, from 
yield of five where you've gone up from being an SDL all the way pretty much to like senior level and taking a company from five to 10 million in ARR as we were kind of talking about beforehand. How are you taking some of the learnings from that and applying it to your new role now at Screenloop? Yeah, so at Screenloop, I joined with the revenue, you know, pretty much at zero, zero dollars in, in ARR. And, you know, I, I wasn't sure whether going from a business where there, there was, you know, playbooks and, you know, we had product market fit, whether going to, you know, a true startup was, was the right thing. On reflection, I'm really glad I did it because there are a lot of transferable learnings, you know, like execution, a lot of the, the, the methodologies that we leveraged at Yieldify, we still implement here, a lot of the technologies. But the big difference is, is that when you're building from zero to one, without having the product market fit, you have to be so agile. And, and at Yieldify, we may have waited a, a few weeks to, to, to make changes or to iterate. At Screenloop, it's done on a, on a much more regular basis, uh, not just on the, the, the marketing, the content, the SDR work, but as a, as a revenue organization as a whole, uh, the velocity of, of, of the, the pivots is, is certainly much, much higher. Mm. And I'm really interested to know, you mentioned some of the methodologies that you brought across from Yieldify, some of the technologies. Can you perhaps speak to perhaps three kind of core, like foundational pieces that you brought into Screenloop to really get things up and running? Yeah, absolutely. So so when you know when I spoke to a lot of startup founders, what 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 they were saying is that you know they maybe weren't investing as heavily in technology uh, as early on as as perhaps they should have. So so as soon as I came over, we we implemented outreach, which uh, was was obviously for the the sales automation. That was to really increase the velocity of the the work that the SDRs could do, which uh, was a team of four at that point. Secondly, we brought in the the methodologies surrounding sales sales deal progressions, which was Medic, and making sure that we had a robust methodology in place to validate whether the pipeline that we were identifying was actually going to to close or or whether it just simply wasn't. And the third thing was I've I've always benefited greatly from outsource workers. So. We, we've been working with a, an amazing team in Asia uh, for, for about six or seven years from, from my time at Yieldify. And we brought them over very early on as well to, to give us some efficiencies with the, the work that the SDRs were doing, not just in the, the contact sourcing, but also the operational work within outreach. We were leveraging a, a very talented team in the Philippines for that. Nice. Out of interest, from a technology standpoint, did that include a CRM or... Yeah, so we were using we were using HubSpot and and we we'd started using them for the the sequences and one of the first things that I saw when I came over was just you know there was missing data that I was used to seeing when when building Yieldify and and that then was one of the big catalysts to to bring in outreach and and, and make that change kind of very very quickly to, to to give us that insight that we needed to have a bit more predictability in in the work that we were doing. Mm. And is there, what's the next step then in terms of, I know you're on this journey to get to kind of 1 million. What are you working on at the minute that you're, let's say you're particularly passionate about or excited about that's going to build on those foundations and really start to get you there? Yeah. So, so we, we grew from zero to half a million in, in around about six months, which was, was, was quick. And we did that predominantly with SDRs and, and one or two. Uh, sales contributors, like account executives. Since 
really the half point of the year we we invested into marketing so we brought in a director of marketing we've also started building out the client services team where we're moving to more of an account management model to, to to expand the existing accounts and clients that we have and i think like what i'm kind of most you know passionate about right now is is really looking at what like what volume of of sales qualified opportunities can we actually grow to so we've been averaging around about seven or eight sales qualified opportunities per SDR. Uh, but we really want to know, like, can we maximize that somewhere between 10 to 12? And, and how many SDRs can we ultimately hire to, to, to actually beat plan next year and be ahead of it? So we're doing a lot of work right now on our TAM analysis on what our, our ICP1, ICP2 looks like and, and, and really building a, a, a really clear plan to, to execute beyond 1 million by the end of the year and into you know, between three and, and four million by uh, the end of next year. Mm. And um, it's really interesting, like you mentioned, the the TAM analysis. And is that something that you took from your time at Yieldify that, you know, is, you found is a really integral part of really deploying this strategy? Yeah, so uh, as, as part of the journey at Yieldify, around about 30% of the net new revenue that we drove was, was driven by existing clients. And... The, the minute we hit 50 clients at, at ScreenLoop, there was a, an identified opportunity to, to kind of look within. So, so that was brought over straight away to say, right, how did we execute on that? What was the, the, the playbook that actually won? And that, that, I think, is going to make a big difference to where we end this, this year on our revenue number. And it's also kind of much more efficient than, than hiring you know, additional AEs if we can do that within the, the existing team. Um, and I think ultimately the, the the growth that we're anticipating from marketing and the sales qualified opportunities that they will bring was was again what we saw at Yieldify. It was it was events, it was direct mail, it was kind of heavily personalized strategies to to attract our tier one accounts because we know that there's you know a large proportion of the overall revenue that exists sitting within uh, probably that twenty to thirty percent of 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 accounts out of everything that we're we're looking at. And I'm going to make a sweeping assumption, but as you now bring in your as a director of marketing, I'm assuming that the role then of marketing is going to be very much aligned with the SDR approach in terms of the accounts that you're going after. Yeah, exactly. So we we, we try to be kind of laser focused on that. We've we've been running you know one or two events each month in in London, which are in person events to to bring the businesses that we're looking to work with together and certainly marketing sits directly with the SDR team I mean we're fortunate it's a, it's a relatively small office but they're 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 really close together to make sure that what we're working on with our outbound approach is, is kind of mirrored in our digital and, and online approach with our clients as, as well and, and prospects ultimately too. Mm. Something that on that note of hiring and obviously it's kind of a specialty right for screen loop and something that we kind of were talking about beforehand is the different type of people that you need at different stages of your business and the kind of traits that you're looking for. So I think probably particularly looking through the lens of sales, and perhaps you can split this by SDRs and A's, or perhaps, you know, it's the same. What kind of traits are you looking for people, looking in people when you're hiring them at the, let's say, zero to one stage, and then the five to 10 stage? Yeah, so if we start with the SDRs, there's... An awareness within hiring typically on, on IQ, you know, like people have the intellect to, to do the job. There's then people are typically aware of uh, EQ, which is the emotional quotient. 
and you know are people kind of emotionally aware and and are they uh, able to be um you know fair with their teammates and, and and part of a team but the third one which is aq which is the adversity quotient means like what is your grit and determination like how deep can you dig when things get really really hard and when when we were looking at the the structure of the team that we wanted within screen loop the aq the the adversity quotient had to be much much higher than what i typically hired for because ultimately a startup of of you know when you're building from zero to one you know for 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 quite a few weeks quite a few months actually three or four months nobody had hit the the sales uh, qualified opportunity target it was this milestone that nobody had hit uh, and and for a lot of people that's daunting to the point that that people want to leave the organization because it's an impossible target whereas people that have got a high level of grit and determination see it as a milestone that they ultimately can strive for and be the first person to hit so that was like really important for us that that we had a, a high level of grit within within the team we also were looking for people that had shown some sort of entrepreneurial spirit from a young age so for example one of our SDRs had set up a, a she, she used to produce beats through university to sell to uh, artists and another one has actually built a, a, a fairly decent sized car uh, like improvement enhancement business so they've got that hustle you know in them uh, and that's been like that that was that was actually a very direct decision that, that we made to hire that type of, of of individual what i'm really interested by you know iq and eq i think i'm certainly familiar with and i'm guessing that the audience probably are as well you know i think it's pretty well covered like the type of things that you can do to look for those particular qualities AQ I've not come across before, and I'm really interested to to actually cover that. How do you look for AQ when you're interviewing? You know what stands out? Yeah, it's the it's the the, the reason that we hire the best people, and I don't know if I can tell you, but uh, no, I'll, <laughs> I'll, of course I will. Um, so look, the, the the thing with adversity quoting is that you're not looking, you know, you know, to somebody demonstrate grit on a phone call you're, you're trying to understand like in their journey have they shown a a need to kind of get up when, when when things have been tough so a really simple example is like did you fail first year at university and then come back around and thrive to get whatever grade you actually wanted to get and um, how many times did you get rejected when you went for your first ever job before you actually got it and and, and how were you made to to feel and i think ultimately with with adversity quoting you're looking for somebody that that sees every challenge in their journey as part of a building block to where they're going in their life. So something for me that's a non-negotiable when hiring is is that I, I I never want people to be rude or detrimental to where they have come from, you know, whatever their past employment was. Like for, for somebody in my my perspective with very high EQ, they just see everything as 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 part of their journey that they've they've grown and they've developed and they've become better off the back of it. And and that's like, you know. Uh, two or three simple ways to to, to identify it. Um, the, the other really simple one is is that I think a lot of businesses make the mistake that they they really over glamorize the role that somebody's coming into. And probably in my experience, I've been guilty of that as well at certain points. You know, pretending that everything is amazing and everything is really really well defined and targets are always getting hit and everybody's on plan, which you know, truthfully, for for probably eighty to ninety percent of businesses, is just not the case. 
And for adversity quoting, a really simple thing to do is is when you're 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 you know probably at the second or third stage of the process is just be completely honest as to where the business is at, where is the team, where is the the top performance, where is the weakest performers, what is the business doing well, what could they be better at, and you can really quickly pick up from somebody whether they they take that as you know, I don't want to go there, which, by the way, is absolutely fine because it saves them a lot of pain as well as you a lot of pain. Or people with typically a very, very high level of, of, of AQ are looking at it like, oh, I know I can I can be part of this journey and I know that's what I'm looking for. And just because I missed target one month doesn't mean that I'm not going to hit it the next month. And that's something that we very proactively do here, uh, certainly more so than, than at Yieldify, where, you know, it was a little bit more well kind of defined. PR was probably higher. Here, we're very honest with people like what their journey will look like and and the ups and downs that come with joining, you know, truly a startup on their initial initial phase of of growth. Yeah, I really like the uh, the transparency that you're bringing in. I guess to add to it, it's very much the difference between not only them being the right fit for the role that you've got, but also you being the right fit for them, particularly in the early stages. As I can attest to as well, it's never easy and actually bringing in people that you know, like structure and process being in place and and you've got order and where you're kind of slotting in is very different to what it can be like, which, yeah, it's very, I think you used the right word, like hustle kind of culture, which, yeah. you know, suits some people and then uh, very much alienates other people as well. Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to add, like, one of the one of the things that's important is that when, like, there's this whole concept around diversity of mind and 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 it's important that that when you're going through that growth, which we're now in a different different phase to where we were at the start of the year, that we don't just keep bringing in the same type of of person. So actually, one of our most recent hires is somebody that has a high level of 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 structure because we know that we've got maybe more people that are are used to kind of finding a way to make it work. So actually, we want to make sure that we're being mindful and bringing in people that can actually collaborate and and learn from each other in a way that will 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 be the best for the business because ultimately we're now hiring for people to take us from you know one million to five million that, that we need to have that diversity within within the team yeah it's a really good point actually and uh, it kind of brings me on to where i was going to go with it is how do you then start to what's the word start to move them over and also start to evolve them as the business grows you're obviously moving to a point where you get to obviously for you guys once you hit one million and then it's beyond so what traits are you then looking for between five to ten million and i guess the second part to that is how are you then taking the original people on that journey to that stage yeah so like we're very fortunate like our 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 founders are mainly all from some of the, the biggest unicorns in the in the world, you know, whether it's Revolut or, or Stack Overflow for for example. So therefore like we have a an infrastructure within the leadership team where the the predictability is is there. So there's people that the the perhaps more agile can learn from and there's there's training in place to try and coach and develop people to that to that point. Now the beauty of tech and, and startups is that I'm not an overly, you know, like, you know, for example, like building from say 50 to 100 million probably doesn't interest me as much as building from zero to 10. And and if that's the case for other team members, then there's a wealth of opportunities within the business where they can still leverage that freedom. Maybe they go and open up an office, maybe they go into a new role, maybe they, uh, you know, 
take on a, a sub-vertical that we've never challenged before to, to keep people playing to their strengths. And, and, and I read this book that, that, that really summarized it perfectly, that, that through school, you're typically you know, spending most time on the subjects and the areas that you're weakest at, that, you know, really your your worst traits and, and you're trying to go from a C to a, a B minus. And certainly for me, that was like the approach that, that school school was and university. And 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 what I try to do as a, as a leader is is take people that are A's at what they like doing, and that can be across anything, and, and, and make them absolutely exceptional at it. And, and, it, and it typically is, 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 is really, really well received because you're really playing to the strengths and, and especially, especially if it's like a conscious decision to take them there, it's quite a phenomenal kind of set of outputs that you get from, from the individuals if, if you can guide them and if it's right for them, of course. Mm, yeah, and uh, I think that's absolutely the right way to approach it. So what would you say though when you get there and, you know, you, uh, say for example, one of your previous team that gone and opened a new office, perhaps over in the US, for example, and then they're going through the same process of building their own team, right? Yeah. What traits are you looking for then at that stage of the business? Are you focusing as much on the AQ now or, you know, leaning more towards the EQ? Yeah. So, so one of, it's, it's actually been talked about quite a lot now that, that one of the challenges for exceptional individual contributors is that they're quite often forced on this journey of, of, of management and, and leadership. And something that I'm kind of very focused on is is being really open that becoming a, a manager or leader is not for everybody. And and I had no idea when I got promoted to, you know, head of sales and then VP of sales and, and client services. I really didn't know whether that was ultimately what I wanted, but I was put into an environment and and you know, fortunately I thrived. So we we want to be very open that that, that isn't necessarily the right thing for everybody. If people do choose to go down that route, then what's really important is that there's there's training and guidance and infrastructure in place to to coach people and and to take them from an individual contributor that's done really really well to to a manager and then ultimately to a leader. And you know, for 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 me, like typically, what I've seen the most important traits, I think it, it swings more to EQ and IQ at that stage where you're looking for somebody that, that can really understand people, uh, but also operate with a high level of intellect because they need to decide what lever to pull. They need to know what, what journey to take, what battle to fight, because, you know, in, 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 in basically any business, there's a million things you can do, but you have to be kind of laser focused on, on what is going to make the difference. So I think they become slightly more important uh, while still, of course, you need AQ because being a leader is, is, is also very, very challenging. As part of the as part of the journey, nice. I, I want to stay on the theme of you know the, the difference between you know zero to one and five to ten. But actually, change it up a little bit in terms of obviously given the time of year we're in November at the time that we're recording this annual sales planning really big part of preparing for the new year. And I'm curious to know from your actually to begin with, what is your process for you know planning for the year ahead what do you take into consideration do you have a step-by-step or is it is it really a quite a bespoke approach that you take yeah so so we did all of our planning when we when we did our 10 million dollar seed round like we were always planning for what the, the end of 2023 would look like and 2024 would look like the the thing that i think is critical is that you know, once you establish what your key revenue drivers are, which right now for us it's, it's SDRs and and marketing ultimately, the the situation around 
SDRs is that roughly 50 to 60% will not make it within, I think it's 12 months. So, so when you have that understanding, you then have to start working backwards to say, okay, well, if we, if we do really well and, and 70% make it, right, we probably need one or two extra people to allow us to actually hit plan next year. So, so we've actually started the, the hiring process months ahead of probably ordinarily when you maybe would have, because we know that there's a likelihood that maybe certain, certain people just won't enjoy the role. Then there's also the, the challenge of people being successful in the role. And we want to make sure that we're not chasing the number every single month next, next year that we, we have the infrastructure in place. Obviously, we're very fortunate that we, we have the cash to allow us to, to do that. But I've, I've been in environments previously where it was much more reactive. And, and, and when you're chasing the revenue on a, on a monthly or quarterly basis, you can end up bringing in bad deals or deals that are not good for the, the, the client services team. We don't want any of that within the culture that we're building. So, so therefore, we're, we're being quite kind of direct in, in our approach to, to make sure that not only we have the people to hit the plan, but we give ourselves you know, minimum probably four-month buffer to, to, to get them fully ramped and actually firing uh, within their role to make sure that the, the revenue is, is, is attainable. It reflects a lot. Um, the last podcast I recorded was with um, someone else from Revenue Operations, Kimberly Haley, who mentioned a very similar thing of um, like always be planning, you know, always planning ahead rather than being reactive. And I, I think that's very much the same kind of premise. And so is that the case for like the going from your town, which we touched on earlier, and obviously the accounts that you're going after as part of your SDR approach? Is that something that you feel like you've kind of got covered already or are you constantly feeding into that in terms of the addressable markets that you can go after? Yeah, so I think this has been, again, like one of the, the big differences from, from building from zero to one that Screenlook was predominantly built in the first few months on, on organisations hiring for growth, meaning they were hiring plus 30 or 40% of their existing headcount. So 100 people were bringing in an extra 30 or 40 people with news of the recession, which came out, you know, middle of the year, I can see you smiling. That it, 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 you know, businesses went from planning fifty roles to ten, and for us, that was like a, a, a big shift because we had this massive opportunity of of total addressable market where everybody was hiring because everybody, you know, had loads of cash and and everything was really buoyant. Today, in an environment where that was that was uh, cut back. And and what we did is is rather than hit panic buttons, we we kind of paused for I'd say it was a couple of weeks to to kind of let things stabilize a little bit, and then you started seeing that that there were still more open roles than than people, the highest number of open roles that have ever existed. There was also a massive problem with attrition; people were not happy in their roles. So about twenty to thirty percent of all employees would end up leaving their business within twelve months. So you'd have to backfill. So, so why I say that is we then had a look at the, the ICP profiles that we'd built in our total addressable market, reapplied our initial methodology with some of the additional learnings that we had to make sure that the, the SDR team were absolutely laser focused on the businesses that were the right fit. Now, I think like one of the challenges that, that we're still overcoming is just how quickly the market is moving where you know a business today might have 20 open roles but then maybe tomorrow they cut back to 10 so that's something that we're constantly trying to to stay on top of and that is is certainly challenging 
but we believe that our kind of updated positioning and the way that the the market is evolving is is you know going to going to set us up for success with the revenue and the the targets that we have nice and actually what i was really interested to understand then is you know for your could see that you know by repositioning you know you found those those opportunities still to go after do you have um as part of your role, do you have like, um, I was going to say tools, but that's not quite the right word, you know, tools, techniques to keep your SDRs and your A's motivated, you know, because as it becomes, uh, as you start to narrow focus on these are the accounts that we're going after, obviously, given the state of the market at the minute, are there different approaches that you take to keeping them motivated? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a ton, like, for example, today we were we were doing trainings with the the SDRs on you know what a career in sales looks like so so training is really important so that they know beyond what they're currently doing day to day that there is you know growth for them personally and uh, professionally the other thing that 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 we that we really focus on is is the why like why is this important for you why is this important for the team why is this important for the business and why is this important for our customers and for us also is why is this important for the end users, which ultimately is candidates that are in the hiring process. And I think going beyond just like, hey, we need to hit this number. It's like, why do we need to hit the number for the team? Why do we need to hit the number for the business? What about for our customers? And then what about for candidates? Making it bigger than just the target, I think, is really, really critical. And, and understanding that not everybody that you're working with is driven the carrot and stick that, that a lot of people want autonomy they want independence they want the feeling of of like creativity and and as long as you tap into that then the motivations typically remain uh, certainly higher than 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 the average um, and the other thing is is just you know having having some fun along the way so you know we we took the team to to lisbon for an off-site and you know, for the SDRs, it had been a, a tough month. I think it was it was uh, just off the back of August. Everybody was on holiday, and we went to to Lisbon, and we gave them I think three or four companies each that were based in Lisbon. We gave them a budget to go and buy gifts for them, and just said, "Take the the, the day out, go and meet your prospects, try and book meetings." And we ended up booking seventy percent of the people we went to see. So we booked about. 11 or 12 meetings from the 16 or 17 companies we went to see and the team absolutely loved it and they came back and they were like so over the moon and so excited and it was a human experience rather than just being email and it's just like a small example of trying to you know have have fun along the way and and not be robotic because you know people get bored very very quickly and and uh yeah in 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 boring environments yeah it's it's amazing the impact that it can have right i think we uh to give some context from an Ebster perspective we found the same thing going out and doing events over in the US where we'd spent probably the past kind of like nine months to a year you know kind of been behind a screen obviously it was um, COVID and everything um, and then went out there and actually got in front of people and all of a sudden it's you know you can see that there was product market fit and you can see all the enthusiasm and ever since coming back you know you come back with a huge amount of momentum and actually sometimes just changing your perspective can have a a humongous impact on um, on on the way things are going. Last question on the topic of sales planning: Is there, um, you know, not necessarily specific to Screen Loop because I know you kind of only been there for around about twelve months now, um, but uh, even 
going back to unified days, is there any um, perhaps mistakes that you've made from uh, like during that planning process that you've really learned from and you're now carrying forward into how you're approaching um, planning planning ahead? Yeah, I think you know when 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 we were doing the the planning and the revenue targets, you know, at Yieldify, we were probably too ambitious, and I think on reflection, you know not assuming that every hire you make is exceptional whilst whilst i'd like to think that you know at screen that we, we we are very good at it that, that having that understanding of what the likely performance is then factoring in you know what happens if you know people leave and and of course your attrition rate is always something you're looking at but you know if it's a particularly bad time um or it's a you know particularly good time so so what we've been doing with our sales planning is is building three or four scenarios which range from really bad to bad to good to great and i think that's really important for us to have the visibility of, of what those scenarios look like and you know one of the the other you know mistakes was was probably not thinking through like ultimately how like how commission and compensation you know may need to evolve and change and you know businesses like for for example, at it, it, Screenloop, like we've changed the commission probably three or four times this year already because we need to be agile. You know, the expectation on what a target was achievable was really just a number that we hope was achievable. But we've had to be dynamic and actually think about you know the fact that we are building a business and we need to show that we're flexible with with what we're we're trying to do. And I think possibly at Yieldify, maybe that that was that was too rigid and and you know people know what you know good and fair looks like and and we have been very focused on on trying to yeah, optimize the, the the commission and the compensation uh, as fairly and as as quickly as possible yeah i completely agree uh, particularly in terms of uh you hit the nail on the head right in terms of being initially too, too ambitious but also like uh, I, I love the concept of having different scenarios you know i i'm gonna make a, a an assumption but based off what you were kind of talking about earlier in terms of you know this is going from hiring loads of people to uh, no, hiring significantly less, actually planning ahead for uh, times of contraction as well as for growth um, allows you to certainly steady the ship as it happens and to anticipate changes like that coming your way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other one is is seasonality. Like I, I'm, I'm quite surprised at the number of, of kind of sales leaders that, that I meet that don't factor in seasonality to to the sales plan and just assume every month is going to be the same as the month before. Uh, you know, like there, there undoubtedly is times in the year when things are busier and things are quieter. And, and we, we certainly want to reflect that in the sales plan because fundamentally, you know, a business at our stage and, and probably at most stages, but I don't have the experience all the way, all the way up that the, the sales number you really want it to be hit because when you hit it it feels really 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 good and therefore like understanding that maybe january won't be as good as what december was or july won't be as good as what march was and and having that reflected in the plan is 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 really really important to, to the number actually being uh, achieved as, as as well as you know hopefully overachieved yeah absolutely come penultimate question and appreciate we could probably take this in lots of different ways but something i did want to cover you mentioned at the very beginning that um obviously you went out and worked in new york and obviously now you're based in london 
What would you say are the fundamental, and if, of course, if you agree, what, what do you think are the fundamental differences between selling um, in EMEA and in the UK, um, but then, uh, sorry, versus selling in the US? Yeah. So the first thing I'd say is, is if you get the opportunity to move country and it, it makes sense for you, even if you don't know if it fully makes sense, I would recommend you grab it with, with both hands. I certainly wasn't aware of of what that move would do for my career and for my growth and my development. And I think it's like a massive opportunity for for people personally and professionally to go. But I hadn't even visited New York and I turned up with two suitcases and about four foot of snow at Dunkin' Donuts on Times Square and, and was just like, Oh, I'm okay. I'm here, uh, and and as I said earlier, like a few weeks turned into several years. So I'd say, yeah, firstly, like if you get that chance, it is incredible, and and take it. The differences that I noticed very very quickly, everybody obviously knows the the size difference, right? Like the the sheer volume of opportunities is ten x what I saw in 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 the UK when 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 I was when I was selling selling there, and. That is not just, you know, on the East Coast, it's in the West Coast, it's in the Midwest, it's, it's even in Canada, it's in Mexico, like it is just enormous. And, and with that comes opportunity. The second thing is, is I noticed that Americans really wanted to do business. Like there was a real appetite to engage in the process, to, to listen to the pitch, to evaluate, to negotiate, to be really upfront and to give dead, like hard deadlines and to like stick to it and, and to, to really work hard at, at accomplishing them. Whereas I always found in, in Europe that, you know, certainly there was maybe more planning. It was, it was maybe slightly more hesitant to really engage in the sales process. And, you know, like I would, I would, I would have discovery calls where they were planning for 18 months ahead in London. Whereas in, in New York, they were, they were planning for Monday or they were planning for next month or, or for maybe next quarter. So, they, they were certainly like that, that that was very very apparent and and the third thing is is I was very lucky being Scottish in in America most people had some sort of affiliation to Scotland whether it was from great ancestors or or you know some some lost connection that it allowed me to sell really really well you know I, I ended up selling just just under two million dollars whilst I was there which at Yieldify at one point was about 40 or 50% of the, the, the overall revenue. And it was just because there was such interest in the product. It was a great product. We had a, a really great process. And, and I, I think I was a bit of an anomaly being in, in, in America as a, as a Scotsman. And, and I think it really, really helped. I'd like to think that there's probably a bit more to it than, uh, than just, oh, well, I like the Scottish accent. So uh, yeah, let's, let's do a deal. Um, no, it's really interesting. And uh, do you reckon... Other than, you know, the bits that you kind of discussed there, in terms of the way that you sell, like the process, is there much different there? Or do you think it's very much more just um, more on the personality side of things? You know, you say the appetite for it or or, or is it fairly similar? No, I mean, I, I, I definitely noticed the stakeholders that were involved typically were, were really senior in America from from the start that you you know you you could you could be pitching you know your discovery or your solution call directly to the CMO of an organization doing you know 50 to 100 million in in revenue whereas you know in in Europe I, I typically see that it's either kind of middle management or uh, 
yeah, just just not not the final decision maker, economic buyer that early on. So that was that was definitely very very uh, tangible and and very apparent. And I think also the, the 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 critique of what your business does, like in in America, there there really seemed to be a, a very open approach to understanding, you know, the value, the the implications, the the technical, you know, issues that that could exist, and and it was very very upfront. Whereas a lot of the time, I think that's included in the, uh, you know, for example, maybe the infosec that takes place in in Europe, but you know, obviously, I don't have 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 full visibility. So I was only there for a few years, but there were some of the things that I certainly noticed as an individual contributor. You know, the the, the kind of key differences uh, from from both. Lovely. Last last question, and then uh, and then I'll let you go. Um, what is one book that you would recommend to other revenue leaders? You actually alluded to one earlier, which I'm intrigued to know the title of. Um, but uh, what what would be the one? Yeah. So. The the book for me that I think is has made the most difference this year is Stolen Focus by Johan Harry. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you read it. Uh, I haven't. Um, I, okay. I actually recognise Johan Harry, but um, tell yeah, me a little he's, more. He's he's done he's done uh, a few. He's a, he's an exceptional writer, and Stolen Focus, you know, basically talks about the fact that the world we're living in is set up to distract you and and everything from from slack email notifications whatsapp facebook we are set up to be distracted and he talks about the fact that you know google email notifications it was a team that were one day in a a room they said you know how can we increase the the number of people using email And, and one developer said well why don't we just send a notification to their phone every time they get an email and it was something like three or four billion notifications were then delivered the next day, or it was maybe a week after, but it was within a set period of time in one day. And that was the, the logic behind it. And, and what it goes on to talk about is the fact that if you are distracted and you're in this environment in, in, in this environment of, of being constantly distracted, the impact on your quality of work is, is insane. Like your, your IQ drops, I think about 10 or 11 points, meaning that you would be you'd be operating at a higher level of intellect if you turned up to work stoned on cannabis like that's that like that's just how bad being distracted is that you're actually smarter if you're if you're you know highly intoxicated on on cannabis and and what i knew at at screenloop when i when i joined is that at yieldify you know we had 20 sdrs so if 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 a few of the team weren't operating at 100% you know really a, a high high performing state it wasn't overly detrimental to the total team number. Whereas if you've only got three or four people in your commercial team or in your SDR team, you need everybody operating as, as close to the top 1% as, as possible. So the book really explores and, and, and details some of the practices you can put in place to, to protect yourself and, and really just allowing people to be aware of what distraction looks like and, and, and fundamentally the cost on performance to, to avoid it moving forward and and that book has been you know incredible for the team we talk about it a lot it's uh, it's actually part of our onboarding plan here and probably everyone in the office is bored of me talking about it because it's it's just it was so powerful and it resonated so much because you know we're living in this digital world so really really uh, amazing book 
I love it. If um, I guess as a follow on to that, if you've if, to the to the listeners, if you've not watched the Social Network on uh, on Netflix, that's also a great um, kind of expose of like how it happens and how tech companies have come up with all these strategies to get you like hooked to your phone. Um, I don't know, you know, for your for your SDRs, is it not a good thing if you're you know your prospect on the other end is seeing that email coming in straight away, get distracted <laughs> from what they're doing? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the catch-22, but certainly, certainly just, yeah, having the visibility and then let, let people operate within within that. The, the, the big thing about the the book is that the problem is a lot of it ex- exists in a subconscious level. So if you want to try, like, delete an app from your phone that you use regularly and, and, and say, you know, you'll delete it for a week, what you'll find is you've got a twitch with your your your, your finger. So you'll go searching for that app subconsciously maybe when you know you go to get a coffee or you go to the bathroom you're actively searching for it and then you realize you're like oh i actually deleted it and for me when i deleted uh it was a linkedin app however many months ago it took me about two weeks before i stopped doing that on a subconscious level and it just showed like i wasn't proactively thinking about going on it i was just getting consumed into that environment so yeah like uh, it was it was very eye-opening and, and it was part of the the reason for you know for implementing it that, that's the power of habits for you. All right. I'm going to conclude there. Otherwise, uh, that would take us down another rabbit hole. Um, Stuart, this has been awesome. Uh, well, to be fair, you've just said that you've deleted your LinkedIn app. So my normally my follow-up at this point is, you know, Daniel wants to connect with you, you know, reach out to you. Where can they find you? Uh, evidently nowhere, but <laughs> I'll throw it open to you. No, no, I'm, st- I'm still a user. I just don't have it on my phone, but I'm still on, I'm still on LinkedIn, of course. But yeah, uh, it'd be great to connect. Awesome. We'll uh, we'll put a link down in the uh, in the show notes. Stuart, this has been wonderful. Thanks so much for yeah. for joining me and to everyone at home that's been that's been listening along. Thanks so much. We'll see you next Thanks, week. Thanks, Lee. Appreciate that. It was awesome. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Revenue Insights. If you want to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter, and we'll deliver every episode straight to your inbox. If you have any questions, feel free to connect with us on LinkedIn. Our links will be in the episode notes. See you next week.